The Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guests today are Ralph Kubli, an investor and independent director, and Vili Bramatz, managing director at Ariadne Business Analytics. Between them, they've developed views about blockchain networks and blockchain-based businesses, and about how blockchain technology can achieve its potential by improving the balance between speed and security, and by working with traditional regulated finance. They also believe that if blockchain is to fulfill that potential and achieve genuine scale, it must expand beyond the transmission of value into the transfer of value through time, namely more complex financial instruments. And on that, they believe standardization of financial instruments can play a vital role. Ralph, Billy, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Now, as I mentioned a minute ago, uh, one of your interests is this standardization of financial instruments, ACTUS FRS. Uh, Its aim is to create, as I say, this global data standard for financial instruments by effectively distilling them all into a set of cash flows. In effect, uh, the goal of ACTUS FRS is to create a financial contract standard. Can you tell us where that uh, project has got to? Yeah, um, I would even clarify a little bit more it's uh, to distilling it into cash flow patterns, you know, the way you exchange them. So, and uh, where uh, Actus is standing now, so Actus is an is a open source a foundation uh, established. Uh, I think we have very good relationship to different regulators uh, to um, now with uh, really, there are people using this, uh, this the standard really in, um, in blockchains uh, like uh, Casper, but also uh, Cardano. Uh, even there's a small one in, um, in uh, Ethereum. Uh, so plus then real uh, I- I- implementations in real banks. We'll come back to Casper in a minute. Can I ask you a very basic question? If you do reduce financial instruments to these, what you call these, these patterns of cash flows, these, these standard components, how many as it were, attributes do you do you end up with? You take the whole world of financial instruments, yeah. the whole universe of it, okay. um, and reduce it to a manageable number of pieces. How many pieces are there? Yeah. Now, if you say the whole uh, universe, we have to cut out the, the, the super crazy exotic ones <laughs> because you can invent always something new, um, but they're relevant. Let's talk about the 99 plus percent, you know, uh, the, this one. So then we talk about uh, less than three dozen of patterns. So that's the pattern. So three different, a dozen different types of the way exchange cash flows. Uh, and the total number of attributes of all these is about 150 attributes. So 36 patterns, 100 attributes. Is that? 150 attributes, right? That's a reasonable summary. Yeah. Now, the, if you read the, uh, the prospectus for the instrument, it has these contractual terms in it. Those are one thing. But a lot of financial instruments are also linked to what's going on in, in financial markets, what I suppose uh, blockchain people would call uh, oracles. Um, you know, you have a margin call if the, if the value of the collateral falls. You know, what happens if uh, the issuer of the instrument falls over? Uh, what happens if, if deposits uh, flee banks? Uh, floating rate notes are, are linked to interest rates and so on. So how does, your, how does the Actors FRF standard account for those 
those links, those uh, oracles, yeah. as it were. Yeah. Now, in the center, we have the contract, which is this agreement, which can be represented as an algorithm. Part of the agreement are pointers to what we call the risk factors. So the risk factors are ex external to the contract, but the contract can get signals. Okay, and there are three, let's say, main groups of risk factors. One is what we call markets, which are interest rate, ethics, whatever. Then, um, then the second is uh, counterparty, which is somebody not fulfilling the agreement around this center. And the third is behavior, which is like uh, calling a, 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 a saving contract or, or marching calls and things like that. So, so, the, so the, the contract knows that there are external uh, signals uh, the contract has to listen to. Uh, the contract knows how to react to, but the signal has to be externally supplied. Now, one thing we, we haven't talked about in relation to, to Actus is, is where it, it came from. Uh, and to some extent, it's addressing a problem which the regulators of the financial services industry globally uh, thought they were addressing after 2008. In other words, there was this lack of data about who owed what uh, to whom and what was going on in the financial market, which might indicate that it was about to enter a, a critical period. And one result of that is that financial institutions now report vast quantities of data, all types of financial institution. You know, hedge funds reporting, you know, form PF. Uh, you've got investment banks reporting to these uh, uh, OTC derivative data warehouses. We've had legal entity identifiers uh, introduced. So there's an awful lot of data being reported by the industry now to to regulators, I'm not sure that regulators are doing much with that. Um, but how does how does the Actus FRF data standard improve upon, or supplement, or complement what regulators have done since 2008? Yeah, um, one uh, of the outcome of 2008 was the Dot uh, Frank Act, uh, and Dot Frank Act one. It has about 15 pieces and the first five, four, five first ones are the important one. And one is the most important one is called financial stability. And within it have A and B, financial stability board. That's the board who, you know, should say yes or no. And the second was is the office of financial research. Now that has been really written by Alan Mandelowitz who is an ex-regulator. He was also the chairman of the Federal Home Loan Board. So he understood what the storm uh, meant there. Uh, and Alan and me, we have actually, and then others, of course, came to it, but we were the first to found Actus. And Alan has written this text uh, of, uh, of, the, um, uh, of the Office of Financial Research, which should standardize three things. One is the counterparty, and that has uh, materialized in the LEI. So that has happened. The second is market data that we can say has been is already standardized. You know, a good job done by um, Refinitiv by Bloomberg. And the third is financial instrument. That is still the piece missing at that. And because we saw that did not materialize, we found that Actus. But now, if you go to the OFR website, at least they now quote Actus as the, one of the future standards. You find it on the, uh, on the website of the OFR, which is part of the treasury of the US treasury with the targets to standardize finance. Now I can see why the, the Actus uh, data standard is useful for regulators. What does it do for people trading in these instruments, investors in these instruments, and indeed 
the institutions which end up servicing these instruments like custodian banks, central securities depositories, even central counterparty clearing houses. What does it do for the market institutions as opposed to the regulators? Yeah. Uh, now, once you see the, the, the problem, how it, uh, how it has to be solved, you see that in the center of everything we do in finance are the expected cash flows, the future cash flows. You need it when you trade first for the for you you uh, check the trade. Uh, you need it when you do your first booking. You need the treasurer needs it. He needs to see the future cash flow. The risk manager needs to see how the value of the cash flows changes, etc. So what Actus is doing, it serves to any everybody in that chain. Regulator, in my opinion, would be almost a side effect here. Uh, so it uh, so it it touches everything. So, and you can always know the logic. You always know the logic. And uh, so you can play around with it like shocking, you know, stress testing, you name it. Now, you know, a financial instrument is also a, uh, a legal instrument. It's a financial contract, but it's also a, a legal contract. Do you, does the, the standard extend to standardizing uh, legal terms as well? Yes. I mean, if you look at the full financial contract, you know, it has um, the terms, um, a lot of it is about what to do in case of default or when is a case of default established. Plus the second part is well, how do we exchange the cash flows? And then the third one, how do we securitize in case when the default happens? So this we can see roughly three pieces. So what Actus covers is this um, exchange of cash flow and even the securitization of it, like guarantee and collateral and repo calls and, uh, and marching calls. Uh, so, so, so that is covered by actors. And essentially now, of course, it is written by lawyers in text. And lawyers have an aversion against mathematics, which is very, very counterproductive in this case, because a financial contract has been a mathematical construct since its, its inception. Because whenever the, the, somebody made a loan, he took a pen, even in the middle age, you know, and calculated when will you get how much interest and so on. It always has been a mathematical and uh, this, uh, this textual overlay just confuses the, the problem. So we have to come back to the situation where we know the financial contract is, a, is, a, is an algorithm really and should be understood like that. So effectively you're translating legal terms into arithmetical terms yeah. which have been all the time yeah. um, you know we, we know it at the beginning otherwise if there if this wouldn't be the computers and banks wouldn't work um, yeah the, the lawyers are just trying to capture what those cash flows will be exactly and in words you know and words are always uh, they, they introduce uh, dubious um, uh, things interpretation etc so mathematics was invented as the one single clear right. language and it, and here it applies fully and it should be used fully Right. So you, you have no use for this um, technique we've come across from our friends at Navura, the general legal markup language, GLML, where this is almost like a, an artificial intelligence application where you yeah. start to standardize yeah. uh, legal. Now, why, yeah. why should we do things like that, also artificial intelligence? If the things are clear at the beginning, why do we blur it? To, mm -hmm. to invent an algorithm to de-blur it, and probably there will be a lot of errors. And the contract has to be something very precise. So, so uh, establish it, 
in these terms, which were meant at the origin and keep it throughout the lifetime. And the thing is solved. So Atlas is reducing everything in effect to, to mathematics. Uh, yeah. It's a kind of algorithmic standard, I suppose. Pertaining to the cash flows, yes. Yeah. Okay. And how much data does, does, the, does, a, does an algorithmic standard have to carry or how is it able to carry or is that a stupid question no 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 uh, we said in the beginning the total amount of uh, data points is about 150 or different attributes but right. a normal let's say simple bond carries seven or eight or ten attributes with it right uh, so so it's uh, uh, and uh, uh, you know uh, and the simple bond on the on the blockchain would already be quite some advanced in finance huh? so it's uh, and the more complex mortgage uh, might carry about 20 attributes and mm -hmm. then if you have caps and floors then it goes to 30 40 50 in the max i think there's no contract which has more than 60 attributes you can take the standardized components in effect and piece them together like lego blocks to describe the the particular financial instrument, so you, you've got those 150 attributes, those 36 um, families, if you like, okay. and and those 150 pieces are basically enough to build any instrument that's out there. Yes, yeah. consistent uh, uh, in itself, yeah. right? So that's yeah. the point, right? These instruments then will become consistent, right? Really, you know, it's not just a bond, you know, it's a future, it's a swap, you know, it's a securitization that you can do consistently on the same standard uh, and on the same mathematical basis, so to speak. Yeah. Right. Maybe I, I would like to add here something. Yes, you know, uh, for a contract, it is very important that you have input and output. In between is the algorithm. So mm -hmm. the normal financial contract should be something which you piece together. As soon as you start piecing together, ambiguity comes in again. So that's why we have defined this 36 or even a little bit less than 36 pattern, where you have purely input and output. Inside the contract, you really have algorithmic groups like interest calculation. That needs about 10 attributes, 12 attributes in the max or principal calculation. It's another group and so on. And internally it's, it's made together, but the contract as such is a full piece where you have input output. I think that is the essential thing. Otherwise, we start again getting into dubious areas. And only for the 0.023%, there we should have a full open style. And the other 99 plus percent should be purely uh, made. But then on top of this is a single contract. This is a bond. This is a stock. This is a, a future. This is a swap, etc. Now, uh, for a portfolio, can engineer, of course, putting a bond together with an option, with this and that, and then the portfolio, of course, is the complexity of the sum, but of the pure sum of its individual pieces. That talk of internal consistency was starting to worry me. We were getting into Gödel's paradox about how mathematics is not internally consistent, but I assume for, for practical purposes, this, is, um, this works. Is yeah, there... yeah, we are far on this side. You know, finance yeah. is quite primitive in the compared to the higher logic of philosophy and physics. You know, yeah. it's man-made, <laughs> so okay. we quickly go to rock bottom of it. Good. Um, uh, um, a more banal thought is: is does the are there potential conflicts between the actor's standard and the existing standards that are out there? You know, the old joke is that about financial markets there are so many standards. You know, take your too many to choose from so you don't choose any at all but the financial markets are operating in the front office on fix 
in the back office on uh, in the derivative sector using FPML. Does Actus integrate uh, or supplement those existing standards or does it conflict with them? Now, FIX is a very interesting uh, thing. Uh, Jim Norty, who is one of the main uh, actors in FIX, he's a big fan of Actus. He's okay. also the head of ISO uh, 68, which is about financial instrument. And he wants to bring us to ISO. And we would like to do it. We just don't have the energy at the moment. Uh, but uh, so there you see the relationship uh, between these. So FIX is very much about the trading of the contract. This also has to be seen. You know, the contract is one thing. And to buying and selling is something like on top of it. Huh? I give you now a piece of that contract, you get a piece of that contract. So, so that the trading is, is more on, on that part. But, but what you trade is the whole thing, the whole bond, which carries everything around it. So, so there's a relationship to the thing. There's a, now FPML, uh, I think that's a pure data standard, but the interesting would be maybe XPRL. Now, XPRL is a real is a real strong standard, and actually it comes from a single man. It's uh, Charlie Hoffman, which is another big fan of what we are doing. I keep on uh, the, so which would even make it possible that from once you have that logic of the contract, you can even create a whole accounting system on top, with pure rule driven, purely rule driven, so mm. which leads to continuous auditing. Oh. Now. Um, you've touched on this uh, in, in talking about uh, Mandelovitz um, in particular and um, at one of the US regulators, I think it was um, OFAC you mentioned. O OFR, o OFR right. okay. Office of Financial Research, no. okay. um, yeah. has picked this up. So this is uh, this standard is, a, is attracting the attention of, of, of regulators. Would adoption be accelerated if, I don't know, securities market regulators, central banks, um, were to adopt the standard wholesale and say we think you regulated financial institutions should make make use of this standard um, and maybe it, the international regulators too you know the, the FSB and the the FATF and so on should could are you looking to those national and international regulators to help this standard gain traction yes uh, we do so. Uh, so, so we, and of course, if a regulator would say you have to use actors, it would be very effective, but no regulator will do that. The, uh, you know, regulators have the, the idea that the standard is an artifact, you know, and you pick one, mm -hmm. you know, like with the screw. I mean, you could have picked anyone, huh? uh, but then, okay, make that one. Now, the actor standard is not an artifact, it is not an invention, it's a, it's a discovery. You know, what I discovered was only that everybody follows this pattern. You know, I saw India, South Africa, Europe, whole America, everybody doing the same, but doing so differently. So, so in this sense, actually, it should be adopted, but I don't think regulators are there. They, they think it's an artifact, and that's why they don't want to uh, pick anyone. So, so they, they just say this is something good here. But uh, if a regulator, and in my opinion, regulators would not have to have to enforce it, uh, but to really, they only should demand data in that standard, and then it will come itself. But there is a way yet to, to there. I think it's also important, Dominic, to notice that, you know, the benefits of using the standard accrues to the first party that uses it, right, even as on an individual basis, right? So this is not, this is not something that 
uh, you should wait for as a financial institution to understand and to apply to your world because the benefits, the clarity and the logic that you will introduce to your operations and also to your business uh, and the opportunities that you will develop based on the clarity of your understanding of your liabilities and of the assets and the obligations and how you can transmit that information to your clients is so significant that that even a single institution adopting and thinking in this standard will have a dramatic you know, increase in efficiency and, um, and reducing, well, not risk, but a much better understanding of risks. You know. so the reduction of operational risk. Yes. You see the landscape in a bank today, it's, it's horrifying. It's horrifying. So you could yeah. clean up. So if the value doesn't depend upon network effects, uh, it's worth adopting this just to improve your own operational efficiency. But presumably, um, network effects are a value as well. Is that right? Yeah. Sure. Start... Oh, okay. Sure. Uh, we also must maybe see that the, the original intention of Actus uh, or one of the main original attention factors uh, was to be able to make uh, systemic risk models. You know, because uh, in 2008, you know, many things could have been handled better if you would have seen the connections between the banks in terms of cash flows. Um, uh, and of course, such a thing is only attainable with a single standard. Um, just, just one thought, uh, we're talking here really about, in the end, we're talking about efficient data exchanges between institutions and between institutions and regulators as well. Um, a lot of data exchanges now are intermediated by these application program interfaces, these APIs. Is there a case for standardizing APIs as well? Is that is that relevant to what you're trying to do with the Actus algorithmic standard? Those APIs need to, to read data, uh, Actus standardized data in a particular in a particular way, do you need somehow to build actors into APIs? Not really sure what I'm asking here, but I wonder if they're relevant to what you're trying to do. Well, yeah, it's very relevant. Uh, it's, you know, this is the interaction with the easy interaction with the actors is a code uh, and it has a well-defined uh, data dictionary. And now you have to interact. Uh, and um, we have already applications that do that. And actually in uh, the actors uh, foundation, we are working on uh, standardizing this piece. Whether this means standardizing APS as total, I, I don't know. But for us, you know, that you know how to interact with the contract uh, to make it much easier, uh, that's very important. But uh, Dominic, the important thing is, right, and that's the important aspect here is that the logic always needs to be part of that exchange, right? So it cannot just be data, right? Because just the single value will not tell you um, that that's the problem in today's uh, legacy financial world, right? Everybody starts thinking of, values and they try to understand how this value is composed and how it was created um, in their systems, right? And, and here with Actus, you always have the logic along with the value. You understand on what basis this value, this one single number was, was calculated, right? Which is, which is highly relevant for blockchains afterwards, right? Uh, maybe this brings us a little bit back to what you said, you know, this is standard number 100 or 10, or 100, whatever, you know, you start yawning. Yeah? So, so, you know, all the standards you have in finance uh, so far, they were all about the attributes, you know, defining what does maturity date mean, what does issue date mean, interest and so on. Um, and we say 
any definition is useless if it's not vis-a-vis -vis the code because the meaning of it is in the algorithm itself. Uh, if you would talk about ontology, I would say the ontological meaning of it is in the code itself. Uh, and uh, so uh, that's really separates actors from all the other standards. Now, in a minute, I'd like to come to how this is relevant to, to the world of blockchain. But before I do, could I ask you, uh, you've described that, that this um, actus standard has value to an institution in its own right. The, ne the network effects are not vital, but they're obviously helpful. So everything you've said makes a lot of sense um, to me. I'm sure it makes lots of sense to, to regulators. How are you going to go about getting all these financial institutions, traditional ones, and I suppose some of the, 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 the new startups, including the blockchain startups who are operating this, how do you get them to adopt this standard? Is I mean, the value is one thing for operational efficiency. The value of network effects is, is another, which requires everybody to adopt it. But where do you start? Um, how difficult is it to move a financial institution towards doing something like this? What's the... What's the method you're going to use to get adoption if, if the regulators don't ordain it? Should I? Oh, you? Well, okay. Uh, I think the blockchain itself is a good vehicle for adoption mm -hmm. because what you have in the blockchain world is an open mind. And I think that is a very good condition. You know, banks, they block because they have invested in systems, you know, own proprietizers, hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, you, it's very difficult to give up, you know, and then there is a process, there's a thinking around it, even if it's highly complicated, you know, somehow you feel safer than throwing up everything and, and making you, uh, uh, although that wouldn't be necessary, but that's how it is. So uh, I think the blockchain itself, is very uh, very good vehicle and and the, the mindset of the people involved in blockchain is very receptive. Um, as I said already, like in um, Cardano, you know the uh, Charles Hoskins, who is the driver, it uh, is is really a big fan. He he has well understood. Uh, you know, I met him very early in in here already when he was still with uh, with Ethereum and so on. So so yeah, so the the blockchain and I think. The banks will make up to it. I think also, Dominic, what will at some point occur to you know the greater public and certainly to investors is that you know all this innovation that we seemingly have in finance is not really innovation. Right? The innovation must come from the core, and currently it doesn't come from the core. It comes from the outside, you know, from a nice app or from ease of ease of interaction. Okay, and. That has limits, as you may or may not know. Many of the neobanks don't make money. Investors have been very disappointed with, the, with these performances. And the reason is that, you know, they just put, you know, a nice front end to dated technology on the back end. And that just doesn't create the kind of scalability and reduction of cost that is necessary. It, it just doesn't. Okay. Yeah. And... And that is the same that will happen in, in blockchains as well, right? You cannot rebuild or basically mirror the legacy financial world on new rails and hope that you will have a sustained, you know, gain and a sustained impact on efficiency and, and clarity. Uh, yeah, so. Yeah. yeah, here I might add that, you know, as, as Ralph said, 
so where the new technology is more on the front end, you know, ease of know your customer, you know, uh, all these kind of things, onboarding of customers. And when it comes to the contract itself, what are you doing? Okay, you go to one of these old machines, you know, which are the old core banking machines, and that is what happened. And if that would really happen, and uh, not something new is coming here, so we then inherit the mess, the current mess of finance, and that goes faster than you uh, think. And I think people in blockchain understand that quite a bit, at least a few are enough, and that's where we're building on. If we, if we look at what's going on in, in DeFi, uh, as you've said, it is really doing some very familiar things. It's, it's creating credit, it's creating insurance products, it's creating asset management products. So it's kind of mirroring the traditional financial services. Well, it's not inventing something new and therefore an algorithmic standard which could describe cash flows and apply to that world as well as to the traditional world could actually help those worlds to, to integrate. Is that part of your thought process here is that actually the DeFi becomes the Trojan horse uh, for the adoption of this standard in the traditional markets? Well, you know, if it's, if it's around long enough, right? So, I mean, we have a very pointed, I mean, I personally have a very pointed opinion about DeFi. At, at the moment, DeFi is kind of, is very limited, right? At the moment, DeFi, uh, when you look at what is really happening in, in, DeFi, in true DeFi, where there's no institutions, right? Not, not uh, you know, other like hybrid versions, but where there's no institutions, no intermediaries, it's mostly over collateralized lending right, as an application, right? It's relatively simple to do because you can, you know, collateralize a Bitcoin or an Ether and you can over collateralize that. And, and you have to, because, because you don't understand you know, cash flows over time here in this in this context yet. So that is what has happening. And then, you know, those are fractionalized or, you know, lent out several times and so on. So it looks a bit like a Ponzi scheme mostly and, and quite frankly, it, it, it also is. So so that that is a niche application of finance, right? It's a very limited application of finance. And, and um, you know, we at, at, at Casper and also together with really, I mean, and certainly I personally, think that this doesn't scale it will not scale it will not scale because the logic is missing and the logic is missing on um on a comparable basis right so i cannot compare these items so without so to speak actus inside or any standard and but actus is now there and, and we believe in actus but without a standardized description of these uh, of the exchange of cash flows of the underlying instrument you know, DeFi cannot scale because who you're going to ask, you know, then we would have to go and ask the programmer that programmed it, you know, to really understand the contract that was written in these instruments, right? So, so that's basically our fundamental premise why, why we at Casper, we believe that, you know, financial services and finance on blockchains do require actors. I can think of one obvious application of the Actus uh, algorithmic standard to, to, DeFi blockchain, and that's these self-executing smart contracts. So if you have a bond uh, represented uh, in, in DeFi or blockchain, it has to pay interest. The smart contract says, well, the data's come along, uh, you own this much of this instrument, and we owe you the following sum of money. Do you, does that, is that one of the ways you think about the standard being applied to that, to that world? It actually provides the standardization that self-executing smart contracts need 
to work properly. Yes, correct. And maybe I'll start, and then really can can you know can um, amend my answers. But <laughs> yes, of course we do. What we think, and maybe it's important for the viewers and for the listeners to understand, or the readers to understand. In we kind of like assume that this has now been solved, right? Because people are actually tokenizing bonds, right? But you know, we would say they're doing it um, not very smartly. Okay, that it's not smart what they're doing. Um, so first of all. Um, these bonds that are tokenized, I, I typically do not understand what the bond is. So there are no machine-readable term sheets, or in most cases, there are no machine-readable term sheets, and there are certainly no machine-executable code for me to understand how the underlying cash flows look like of this instrument, right? So we can give you an example, right? There are um, there are uh, people in the space, uh, and, and by the way, quite frankly, also some of the larger bond issuance that have taken place, you know, you still have to go while you have this token now in your portfolio, right? And it supposedly is representing the bond. You have to go and look at the term sheet that lives somewhere else, you know, in an S3, in an Amazon S3 bucket or like in a PDF stored, you know, somewhere on a bank server to understand what this instrument is, right? And that is just not scalable, right? it's, it's a problem. And in the few cases where, um, where the individuals or the institutions that are issuing these tokens have thought about describing uh, like in some algorithmic way what, what is happening, um, you know, these cannot be compared because there's no standard. So then I need to look at each and individual token, so to speak, and look at the language to understand what is happening inside this token. And that's, again, not scalable, right? That would mean that I would have to, you know, have 50 times more PWCs and KPMGs and Deloitte's in the world to go and read those contracts in the future, which is why we say that, you know, starting with a bond, you need to have the actor standard inside the bond. You need to understand what is going on inside the bond by just looking at this token that you then can compare with a standard that lives outside the bond, you know, and of course, everything must happen on an automated basis and on a machine readable and machine executable basis. And the, standard, the standards that have developed in, in the blockchain world, like, or DeFi world, like ERC20, these are different to, to what you're talking about, which is describing algorithmically the, the legal and uh, cash flow the legal terms and the cash flows that result from the contract. Uh, yes. So ESO20 is about, is about the code as opposed to being about the actual economics. And before, before really just make me, let me make one point. It's really about understanding the asset. It's, you know, ERC20 tells you how is the token stored? Who has access to the token? How can I split the token? You know, how many pieces are there you know so so it's kind of like understanding what the token is but you know that's that's very simple right that's not that's mm -hmm. not finance so that's just the logistics so to speak you know of this instrument but what the instrument itself is right what is the asset is it a bond how does it terminate what's the interest rate when is it paid etc that is not in this that's not in this in this contract really yeah, yeah. There, there are three things uh, I, I want to add. First of all, coming back to the term smart contract, uh, I think this is one of the biggest misnomer that has happened. And actually, a few days after coining the term, 
um, Vitalik, he sent out the you know, message, you know, that was a big blunder to call it smart contract. Because now what we call smart contract on the blockchain is just a piece of code. If you execute on the blockchain, it's smart. Now, is it the smart contract according to Sabo, who, you know, uh, it goes back to Sabo at uh, the concept. And, and, um, and the smart contract is something that is observable, that the blockchain is quite good of it, but it's verifiable. That means you can immediately understand it. So here, this is a smart contract in the blockchain, really bad. It's a piece of code, you know, which you, is very difficult to read here, uh, and then uh, privacy, that's another thing, but then, then enforceable, but it becomes enforceable by habit, observable, and uh, verifiable. So, and what we bring to the, to the, to the uh, equation is the verifiability, because it's published code, it's tested code, it's understood code. Um, and you know, input, output, there's one answer. Given the input, uh, so so there is in, so so that to smart contract, and so that's why we, in order to distinguish, because the term is out, you can't call it back. The genie is out of the bottle, and so we call what we do smart financial contract. But it has uh, quite a different meaning than uh, the term smart contract smart is used on the blockchain. And now uh, coming back um, to the token, <clears throat> uh, the token becomes quite important then when we talk about blockchain. So what the token controls is the ownership. So it's the ownership of something. And most examples we have today is a, is a whiskey barrel or a, a Picasso picture where you have then a fractional ownership. But the, when neither the Picasso nor the whiskey is hopefully uh, digital. I, I wouldn't like to have a, just a photo of Picasso and at least I wouldn't pay anything for that here. And uh, so, so that is not digital. But now with the financial contract, the contract itself is digital. Here, so the token is digital. It points, it declares the ownership of the financial contract here. And finally, <clears throat> just to show you the, the difference of what we do and uh, what is done today in, uh, on the blockchain. We are working together with somebody who is really high on the blockchain uh, and they are really issuing instruments. And actually they even like Actus, but then they write still the Actus in a paper contract they create a token and from the contract they make a photo put it on the computer <laughs> and the token points to the photo and then when you want to understand you go to the photo you read the contract and you try to figure out you go to excel etc in our case it points to an algorithm which the code is here available for everybody you plug in the data you generate mm -hmm. the cash flows right so i'm beginning to see now how the standard can fix problems can fix blockchain if you like and make it uh, uh, faster and and more and more scalable now one of the which brings us to, to something you've mentioned both of you have mentioned uh, more than once in this conversation which is casper by which i assume you mean the casper association and uh, if you look at what a casper association is promising to do it is to uh, overcome uh, what it calls the traditional trade-offs uh, for proof of stake by which i i assume you mean the trade-offs between speed and scalability is that is that right? Tell us about the the Casper Association, what it's aiming to do. And yeah, thank you. And decentralization. So the traditional trilemma, right, in blockchain environments is decentralization, security, and scalability. And um, you know, Casper is basically anticipating what uh, Ethereum wants to do. So we would consider um, ourselves and and truly so have implemented 
one of the uh, one of the research i guess agendas of, of ethereum already today which is called correct by construction um you know solving for some of these major uh, challenges between scalability decentralization and security uh, without compromise so that's one aspect and the other aspect what makes us different from a network uh, or from a blockchain is that we believe that adoption of blockchains really can only really happen if it's relatively easy to deploy blockchains in existing application environments because blockchains are just one other aspect you know of an IT landscape and 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 context and um, and that's why we build a lot of infrastructure that is easily usable by what I would call web 2 developers not just like web 3 you know uh, people that that just want to build uh, you know in this new world but also um you know, enterprises and also projects that want to take advantage of blockchain, but maybe only in a certain area of their, you know, of their IT landscape, so to speak, and their applications. Um, and I think that there's several aspects that specifically make us different, but one area is that it's relatively easy to move from private chains or private uh, environments to uh, um, consortium environments and to public environments. Uh, we have some unique key management features, et cetera. So uh, yeah, those are some of the aspects that we are that we think that make us significantly different than other chains. Uh, 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 can I drop out here? Is that okay? Uh, yes, Billy, thanks for joining us. Yeah, yeah, because I have another call. But thank you. It was a very good interview. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Uh, so, um, uh, Ralph, to go back to, to the Casper Association uh, solving these the, the trilemma, how, how does it, how's it done? How's it doing it? Ah, okay. Um, so one aspect is, of course, we are not compromising on security, which means that we are not as fast, right? So you, you may have heard and, and, and certainly seen the valuation of very fast blockchains have, have exploded. But, um, you know, when you go and really look at it and think about thoroughly how much security you would like or how much decentralization you'd like, maybe, you know, just uh, focusing on speed is really not um, providing you with the environment that you want to build your applications. So, so we basically have a fairly diligent approach in, you know, in, yes, accelerating speed, uh, but, but not at the compromise of, of security and decentralization. So that's one aspect. Um, and um, the second one is we've built basically modular environments. So we have certain key aspects of our chain can be upgraded uh, modular. I mean, the modules itself can be upgraded and, and kind of like they don't operate independently from each other, but, but they can be upgraded independently. So, so the philosophy here is that while we believe that the past should be immutable, right? Many people say, you know, immutability is a really important aspect of blockchains. So the past should be immutable. We agree to that, but the future actually should be flexible. I mean, now you can choose, of course, in our environment that the future is not flexible, that the future must look the same as the past, but many of our clients and also projects that deploy on Casper, they understand that, you know, the future needs, for example, how a, how a smart contract is uh, operated or how a smart contract is written needs to be able to change, right? Um, certainly because of regulation, for example, in enterprise environments um, or, you know, people that are building marketplaces, for example, you know, they may want to add new features to their products and then it's very cumbersome to do so in, in current environments, and but not with Casper. Mm -hmm. So what's your, what's your vision of... of 
how blockchain can be, if you like, rescued from itself, from its own limitations. I've understood from what we've discussed today um, how the, the Actus algorithmic standard can certainly help uh, blockchain, but these problems of, of speed and scalability seem fundamental. And unless you restructure how you, you do things, in other words, throw away parts of, of, of what is the, the classic blockchain, you're not going to, you're not going to get there. Does, does classic blockchain simply die because it can't, you know, it, it can't scale, it can't be fast enough. Um, so it can't grow into the traditional financial instruments. Yeah, so I would say, um, I mean, there's a two-part answer here. Of course, there are industrial applications, right? Environments, IoT environments, uh, you know, future machine-to-machine communication that, that that is currently being built and will happen. Um, you know, where scale does matter and you have to be, you know, really fast. Uh, and maybe you can compromise on some aspects of, you know, of... Um, security because you just need to be fast and you correct for that at another point in your system architecture. Uh, I wouldn't disagree. And, and, and there the question really is, do, do I need a blockchain or how, how would some of these chains look like in the future uh, where, where this is just paramount that you, that you have certain performance aspects? Mm-hmm. Um, now, in finance, I would say... Um, we have a fairly clear understanding that you know a bond um, doesn't have a lot of action, right? I mean, doesn't necessarily have a lot of action, and you know, eighty percent or eighty-five percent, probably of all financial instruments in the world, are bonds, right? Or, or payment and maturity kind of instruments. So I think the current environment and the infrastructure is plenty of power, you know, to do that. And, and also just, you know, to conclude on finance, we believe that, you know, we should use the blockchain for what it is good for, which means recording state, documenting state transitions, right? From, you know, you start in one point and you end at another point and you want to understand what happened in between. That is what the blockchain is very good at, right? Um, And that, you know, that we can do, uh, for example, with bonds, right? We need to understand the state transition function, but the calculations that are happening also on more complex financial instruments, of course, need to happen off chain, right? You cannot today do very complex and computational heavy, um, uh, computational heavy um, computations or, I mean, algorithms on chain. So you have to basically, and that's what we're doing uh, also here in, in this instance in finance, you do what is, you need the blockchain or you use the blockchain for what it's good for and the rest you do off chain, right? And, and you build a system architecture that lets you check, you know, between, between the two worlds. So I'm clear about what you're saying. You're saying that in fact, blockchain is, is good at certain things and therefore it can, if you like, uh, supplement traditional technologies. It can, you can do some of what, you can use it to do some of the things you wouldn't previously have done with conventional technology. So they kind of it works together with conventional technology. But are you also saying there will be certain uh, areas of finance where blockchain is the answer? Blockchain in total is the answer. This entire process can be blockchained, if you like. So the trick is to is to choose those components of what's going on in finance where blockchain is useful, and it might be parts of some instrument, but it might be the whole of other instruments. Is that what you're saying? Yes, I, I would agree. Yes. So, um, 
obviously, you know, the part that everybody's getting excited in finance, uh, for, you know, for blockchain is, is this instant settlement, you know, and clear ownership understanding of where these tokens are, and who has that. Uh, who, who owns which part of the token? Where where are certain you know payments? Uh, do, where do certain payments have to go to? Um, that that is awesome, right? Um, our contribution to the space here is just that we believe that without intelligence inside and without logic, uh, which we we take from Actus and we implement you know Actus on Casper, it will not scale. Um, so that that is basically our you know, our suggestion in with respect to finance. Uh -huh. So often people who look at how blockchain is going to evolve into the, the, the traditional financial markets point first to these so-called enterprise blockchains, these permission networks, if you like, where closed groups of, of people are setting up a blockchain to do things. It's a kind of facsimile of a traditional closed network using using blockchain technology and then on the other hand you you've got the at the other extreme you've got these uh, uh revolutionary blockchain thinkers who think that actually blockchain is going to wipe out uh, all forms of centralized finance including those uh, those enterprise blockchains are become a kind of they become a kind of transitional state between uh, where we are now and the great blockchain revolution of the future. The world I think you're describing to me is one where there is a lot of different things going on. You've got blockchain networks coexisting alongside traditional networks. You've got traditional networks adopting pieces of, of blockchain technology, and you've got areas where the traditional way of doing things is replaced by, by blockchain technology. So you've got quite a complex set of interlocking systems doing different things, but what ties them all together in your vision, uh, and, and tell me if I'm wrong about this, is this Actus uh, algorithmic standard, because you can always reduce whatever's going on to this set of, uh, of, uh, of cash flows. That's correct, yeah. So look, it, let me maybe tell you where I think that the innovation will come from the fastest, right? And some of these sectors have not yet understood you know, what, what opportunity they have in front of them. Um, so I'll give you two examples where I think you know it will really be uh, it will be a tremendous achievement. So one is private debt, right? Private debt should really live on chains very soon, right? Because it's not transaction heavy. It's relatively easy to understand, right? Um, the actors are pretty well known, you know, in many cases in private debt. So it's an ideal use case, you know, for for blockchains, right? So any private equity firm that is big in private debt should seriously look at, at, at blockchains, right? Um, and uh, because it will liberate them and, and that would get us to, to, to the world. You know, I, I see this as a world of optionality, right? Options, right? So we do live in a regulated environment. So it's unlikely that regulated environments will go away anytime soon. And it's just that that's, and, and it would probably be a very chaotic world if, if they disappeared, right? So. So they have a use and they will stay around, but um, but you know in the future, in, in our vision is that you can run like a private debt portfolio, or you can compose you know your own portfolio, basically put together your own portfolio uh, of private debt, you know, in these blockchain-enabled environments, and then it's basically a choice: is it completely public, right, available? You know, anybody like I, I am here and I can 
you know, I, I, I talk to my neighbors and we pool, for example, our car assets together and we issue leasing contracts, um, you know, based on, uh, you know, hopefully on Casper, you know, based on the standard that everybody understands. We just issue leasing contracts and then, you know, anybody can buy these, uh, these obligations from us, basically, right? Um, we can sell these obligations and we, we have to provide the cash flows. Or in the future, uh, you know, uh, that, uh, uh, you know, we still, nobody trusts us, right? So, I mean, even though I have now found, you know, seven, eight people that want to pool their car assets with me and we, we can issue this kind of instrument on a blockchain, nobody's going to buy it because they don't, they still don't believe it, even though they can probably see uh, everything is very transparent. I may still have to go, you know, to a leasing company to do so. However, of course, the leasing company, in order to be really efficient, should also work, you know, in this blockchain-enabled environment, and uh, and should have its 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 entire operating system, you know, basically consider the the efficiencies of of these uh, blockchain-enabled environments, right? So that that's kind of like this option, right? So in the future, hopefully, it's like a, a self-service environment where I can issue a bond and you know people will buy, or probably you know in, in regulated environments you know individuals cannot issue bonds may make sense and then you have uh, intermediaries that issue bonds but possibly on the very same infrastructure uh, that is just maybe private right um, uh, in the case of private debt for example now if if people buy into that vision you've just <clears throat> outlined of what the future of financial markets looks like um and the casper association is is um is a point of entry for them, I assume, into that. So if people want to get involved with the Casper Association, what exactly is it? And what's the relationship between the Casper Association and, and Casper Labs? So I'm somebody watching this, uh, listening to this, and I want to get involved uh, and help realize your vision. How do I get involved with the Casper Association? Okay, so with the Casper Association, you can get involved with us on casper.network. It's relatively easy, where you can find all the open source code. The Casper Association, is responsible for basically the open source code library maintenance development of the open source code you know, on which Casper Network uh, runs. Uh, Casper Labs basically has developed this technology and at some point has given this technology to the world and the Casper Association is, is how we bring this technology to the world. Uh, Casper Labs is a commercial software, I mean, builds commercial software, you know, on top of Casper, builds enterprise applications and enterprise grade uh, application environments for clients on Casper. So that, that is the difference. Uh, and, you know, I'm happy to report that a few institutions, a few financial institutions already share uh, our vision for the, for the future or share the vision that Casper can bring, you know, to the future of their operations and is actively engaged or they are actively engaged with Casper Labs in building financial applications. Casper, um, uh, uh, Ralph, one final question for you. Uh, you've been involved in, in blockchain, uh, I think as an investor since, since 2015. Uh, a lot has happened in, in blockchain over the last uh, six years. You've outlined today a future in which blockchain technology is, if you like, uh, integrated into the traditional uh, financial markets, um, both at the technological level and through the use of this algorithmic, the Actus algorithmic um, 
standard. So if you looked, I don't know, 10, 15 years ahead uh, at this financial marketplace of the future, you've got these um, standardized data flows, you've got these well-integrated technologies. Uh, what's, what's, it, what's it going to be like? What are the benefits of that going to be? What are we all going to get out of that, out of that future? And how different is it going to be from the vision of the, the sort of block, the, the true blockchain revolutionary evangelists? Is it going to be much less exciting or much more exciting? So if we are successful in kind of like, you know, bringing this overall efficiency and I would say asset, oper asset interoperability, right? So whoever is issuing, it's not just on Casper, right? But whoever, whoever is issuing financial instruments on blockchains, they're based on a standard, they're well understood, they can be processed by machines relatively easily. This will mean that vast amounts of energy uh, in the financial system today can be used to create a lot more value and a lot more, uh, I wouldn't say innovative, but, but certainly um, value added uh, you know, tasks, right? So when you think about what banks used to do and some banks still do, right? Is, you know, they financed incredible amounts of infrastructure, right? I mean, we, we forget sometimes that banking is not just asset management and, you know, and, and a little bit of a yield generation on very crazy uh, derivatives, you know, in, um, you know, in, in microseconds, right? But it's about, you know, financing, um, electricity grids, it's about building dams, it's about building, you know, canals, it's about building uh, vital infrastructure that advances humanity. And, and quite frankly, they still do that, but at a much, much more difficult and, and less efficient than they have ever done, right? Uh, you know, caused by regulation. So the ideal world would mean that banks are extremely efficient in the future. And if they're not, they have been replaced by blockchain enabled infrastructures that kind of like are like an app store where I can issue a bond or a token uh, sorry or a swap or a future um, leading to much greater liquidity uh, leading to much greater understanding on a granular level of what each asset uh, produces and what value uh, uh, it actually is developing and how this can be, you know, and how this how this cash that ultimately is generated by this value creation can then be redeployed. Um, yeah, and there will be, you know, scores of accountants and regulators and and auditors and uh, you know people that have been working in assurance before that will no longer be working in assurance and they will no longer crunch Excel spreadsheets, but they actually think thoroughly about the investment opportunity for capital uh, and, and, and how we can bring benefits to their clients. So you're not anti-blockchain, you're not a blockchain apostate, you're simply inviting blockchain to be less introspective and to be in a way more ambitious, to grow up, if you like, and, and cease being just about uh, about financial um well movements of value and actually become a proper financial system I, I used this phrase earlier you're kind of rescuing blockchain from itself that's your mission right yes that's what we're trying to do okay alf kubi thanks very much for for joining us and please uh, give our thanks to billy as well for his thoughts it's been a fascinating discussion thank you thank you thanks a lot